in this month's True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks is joined by the president of Endeavour Global, Adrian Garcia Ronyas. As well as sharing how Endeavour supports entrepreneurs, Adrian and Alan have a wider conversation around entrepreneurship and discuss topics such as the multiplier effect and the qualities needed to become a successful entrepreneur. Adrian, many thanks for joining us today on True Connections. Perfect. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you today, Adrian, principally not only just to hear about your own entrepreneurial story, but also to hear a little bit about how you're helping entrepreneurs through your own organization and your community at Endeavor. So I think it's going to be a bit of a different slant on our usual conversations on the podcast. So it's going to be great to hear from you. But before we get into Endeavor and what's been happening there, I'd love to hear from you, Adrian, first in terms of your background and how you came to join Endeavor. Thanks. It's a long path, actually, that led me to Endeavor. I'll go back in history quite a bit. So I majored in political science, but decided that I really wanted to work in finance. So ended up working in finance. After a while, decided that finance was not really my thing. So I went into a foreign trade, did that as well for another few years, and then skipped to media and was working at the, the Economist Group for a bit over five years. Absolutely loved that, the stimulation and the people and everyone that I got to meet and got called again by a uh, a large financial institution, JP Morgan, joined them. And just when I thought I was getting comfortable and was absolutely loving what I was doing, got a call from these guys that I'd met years earlier, which was Endeavor, if I wanted to join their team. This was a bit over eight years ago. Joined them, not really knowing what I was getting into. And I have to confess, I've been loving absolutely every minute of it. A bit over eight years. My first five years were as a managing director of Endeavor Spain. And the last three and a bit have been as a president of the global organization based out of New York. And let's get into Endeavour then a little bit, Adrian. I mean, it's a super interesting organisation. I think it's truly all about entrepreneurs. And I think in your words, you built on sort of three pillars of dreaming big, of scaling up and then paying it forward. Tell us a little bit about Endeavour and what you and the team have been looking to achieve. As you were saying, it is about the entrepreneurs that are dreaming, that are scaling and are paying it forward. But I guess the most important thing as the organisation is that it really is at its core of, by, and for entrepreneurs. So the reason we do what we do and the 500 plus people that work at Endeavor wake up every morning is because we truly believe in the power of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs. So mainly what we do is we operate in emerging markets or what we've identified as economies in crisis. As of today, we are operating in 39 markets. Hopefully by later this year, we'll be in 41. As I said, 500 plus people. And at the core, what we do is we support entrepreneurs. Why do we do this? Because we believe that entrepreneurs are not only the creators of wealth and the creators of jobs, but we also dig deeper into what we call the multiplier effect. And the multiplier effect is analyzing a bit the success of these entrepreneurs. So as these entrepreneurs become successful, they become local and regional role models. They go on from being founders to being funders. So they angel invest and then they become LPs, et cetera, and then they even set up their own funds. Plus, there's this whole knowledge that goes on and network component that goes on in the organizations or the companies that they found. So it's not surprising to see that successful entrepreneurs are actually breeding future successful entrepreneurs. So a lot of 
future companies are coming out of the famous, let's call it the PayPal mafia. No? So companies are coming out of other companies because that's where the founders are meeting or that's where they're getting their idea or that's because they're seeing a niche that hasn't been filled. And if we analyze this multiplier effect, we see the absolute wealth that comes out of that one or those two founders that founded company A. And that's really what we're about. We're about supporting these entrepreneurs. How do we do it? We do it by a network. The, the essence of what we are is a community, a network, a network of entrepreneurs, obviously on one side, business leaders on the other, and then everyone that has to do with the community. So that could be investors, founders, funders, uh, C-level executives, very experienced verticals, uh, people in, in different verticals. So it's a very wealthy community of knowledge. We have 1,500 companies worldwide, and we have a network of well over 5,000 mentors also worldwide. So the core of what we do is connecting them based on the different challenges they have and figuring out ways how we can connect entrepreneurs to entrepreneurs in other markets, within the same verticals, people that have vertical experience within another market in to other entrepreneurs. So it's all about how we can connect our global community. And Adrian, the ambassadors, the people within your community, your network is really impressive from all different backgrounds, sectors, and with significant levels of experience. What's the attraction that you've seen from your entrepreneurs that have joined the network? What's been the attraction for them to join? I mean, for them, it's knowing that they have a real and authentic peer group. Also, the understanding that, as I said at the start, we really are of by and for entrepreneurs. We are driven by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial challenges. So everything we do has them top of mind. And then entrepreneurs really love connecting with one another. Sometimes it's entrepreneurs that are doing the same thing at the same time, but in complete opposite markets, and they're never going to overlap or not likely going to overlap. And sometimes it's entrepreneurs that are connecting with entrepreneurs that have done it before them. So if I'm an entrepreneur that is just IPO'd, I can teach entrepreneurs that are aspiring to IPO in the coming years. Or if I'm an entrepreneur that has raised a Series B and I need to revamp my team, I might want to speak with people that have done it within my same or similar verticals. And that's the real power. I mean, what we call the entrepreneur to entrepreneur connections is really the most powerful part of what we do. And most of what we do is try to, quote unquote, force these gatherings. So bring them together as a community. And we do events worldwide. Obviously, through the pandemic, we were doing them virtually. But the idea is to try to do as many events as we can. So to be able to convene them and be able to actually have them know that they are part of a larger network. Most of the times, entrepreneurs do know the other founders within their same market. So if it's within the country, within the region, they might know their vertical or they might know their immediate community in their city or in their hub, but they definitely are unlikely to know entrepreneurs on the other side of the world. So us having presence in, I don't know, Turkey, Argentina, Vietnam, and South Africa, we can bring all these entrepreneurs together and connect them. So the reality of what they get out of this is that connectivity and that feeling part of a community, a real support group. Yeah. And I'm intrigued by your experiences, Adrian, across the globe. You're operating, as you say, in hopefully soon 40 countries around the world. What's been your experience of similarities between businesses and entrepreneurs and also, I guess, some of the differences, whether that's culturally or sector difference that you've observed, I'd be interested to hear. You want to start with the end. No, you said the, the differences. No, and it's fascinating. There is a huge cultural difference. I mean, we can't deny that it's very different to hear entrepreneurs 
pitch from different markets. I guess Latins and Americans, they can really go at it. I'm not saying that they're going to exaggerate the truth, but they will take it to the next level and they will actually always increase their markets and their market share and what the target is, etc. Whereas we've noticed that Asian entrepreneurs tend to be extremely conservative. So they come to us and they will be telling us what they're doing. And all of a sudden we're looking at their numbers like, wait, what you're doing is absolutely amazing. I mean, you're completely understanding what you're doing. So we've seen a lot of those differences. And when we are selecting entrepreneurs, as much as we are comparing apples to apples, it's one of the things that we need to observe because those cultural differences are very, very present. So the pitching is very different from one culture to another. And that's the one thing that I was surprised coming in eight years ago, just seeing how very different it is to hear, I don't know, an American entrepreneur pitch versus a European one versus a Latin American one, Middle Eastern to uh, Asian. And they all have their similarities in a way, but we have felt that there's a huge cultural difference. And then as far as similarities go, I always say that we're kind of, quote unquote, fighting the hoodie culture. I mean, we always think that the entrepreneurs are these 20 year olds that are dressed in hoodies. And the reality is that most of our successful entrepreneurs, they might be wearing hoodies, but they're not in their 20s. Well, first of all, they're global citizens. They've normally lived abroad for different reasons because work took them there, because during the university they decided to go there, because their parents have them traveling a lot, but they're very global in their mindset. No, that's the first thing. The second part is that they're experienced. I mean, they're not in their 20s, they're more likely in their 40s. They've covered a niche, they've been doing really well in it, they have developed an amazing career, and they left it because they saw a very, very clear opportunity. And obviously, with that, the third part of it, I guess with age comes the experience. As I said, they're not in their 20s and their 30s, they're experienced and they're global. So that would be like three pillars. What's the typical worry? You know, when you are introduced to a new entrepreneur within your network, Adrian, or your community, what's the sort of a key theme that you hear time and time again from entrepreneurs that you meet? It's interesting. I guess I've learned a lot in these eight and a half years of being dedicated to this, but I guess that my biggest learning has been being able to identify the stage of an entrepreneur's journey or of a company based on what I'm hearing from the entrepreneur. So to your question of what is it that I hear the most of, capital is a very key worry in the very early days. And it's always there. It's always present. Capital is always going to be present. But the whole people and culture part takes more and more presence the more that the organization is growing to a point in which if you're looking at scaling companies, we identify with scale-ups. Scale-ups are normally worried about people, about culture, about the right fit, about being able to, I don't know, to set that atmosphere in which they're being able to limit attrition, be able to have a common culture, opening up in several markets, but with the same field. So all of that is extremely important. And I guess that the more these companies mature, the more crucial people and culture are. Whereas in the very, very early days, it's kind of capital, which is normal because in the very early days, it's 10, 20, 30 people, which is somewhat controllable. And your key worry is just getting funding. But as these companies grow, people and culture tend to be top of mind. And that always tends to be a conversation that comes to that in the end. We hear that as well, Adrian, time after time, having spoken to a number of business leaders and entrepreneurs on this podcast in particular. The people topic is really high on the agenda. The sense of team and people being surrounded by the right people with the right skill sets, playing to people's strengths, also playing a 
really key role in the success of many organizations. Is that something you see also? It is. The people and being able to retain those people, being able to train and upskill the people that have started with you in the early days, being able to also retain the people that their roles have not evolved at the pace as the company has, but you do want to be able to keep them. So I'll give you an example. It's not the same being a CFO of a 20-person organization present in one country than being the CFO of a 1,000-person organization present in five countries. And sometimes you want to be able to transition that former CFO into a role that is still relevant in the organization, but you know that they can't be that future. Sometimes they can naturally evolve, but sometimes they can't. So finding a role for those people, which is also very important, being able to retain them because it's also part of that culture. So retention, rethinking, upskilling, that's a constant, yes. And talking to people, Adrian, I'm guessing that throughout your community and your network, many of your ambassadors and leaders will take positions within other companies. Is that the case? And how common is that? What you mean here is people that are working with us, working because from the point of our ambassadors and our board members in our different chapters, they are already part of their organization. So they take this on as kind of like a side project. It is true that our community gets very exposed to one another. So it's very common for us to see that a board member in country X has met with an entrepreneur in country Y. And two years later, we find out that they sit on the board of one another or they become really good friends and they start a joint venture. So that is very common. The other part that we see very often, that's kind of like a blessing and a curse, is from our standpoint as Endeavor, as the organization, our 500 people, normally that's what they evolve to. They end up either going to work in venture capital because they have these very deep connections and a really truly global understanding, or they end up going to work for one of our Endeavor entrepreneurs, which is also very common. And normally we've noticed also a correlation. The longer they are, the more senior the position is at the entrepreneur. But a lot of our staff has gone on to becoming, uh, as I said, venture capital, working for entrepreneurs, or even entrepreneurs. We have a couple of really successful entrepreneurial cases that have started working at Endeavor. I mean, Brazil's first unicorn was the former managing director of Endeavor Brazil. We have a New York Stock Exchange listed company, Olo, which is also a former staff member. We have a couple of companies that were started that were acquired by major corporations. So it's a very common part of the entrepreneurial journey, especially that our staff ends up working for these organizations. I want to come on to talk unicorns and venture capital in a couple of minutes, Adrian. But before I do, I guess you touched on something earlier, which I guess is key for many entrepreneurs. And as you say, fundraising and capital being a key issue, particularly early on. When it comes to fundraising, what's your blueprint, Adrian? What do you advise many entrepreneurs when they're looking at raising money for their businesses? Well, look, when it comes to raising capital, it's relationship building. The core advice is not to face this as the one-off you need to raise Series A and then Series B, and which whereas it's more of a constant relationship building process in which you want to be engaging with the investor early on. And maybe the investor that you're speaking with now is not the right fit today, but it might be three years from now. And think that in three years, you will be there. So build that relationship, have a coffee whenever you're landing in country or in city XYZ, touch base with them, keep them posted, send them newsletters, keep them in the loop, but build a relationship. I always tell them, I know it's difficult to build relationships because there's so many things that are going on. You're building a team, you're hiring, you're opening new markets, you're fundraising on the one side, but you're like your immediate round and you're not really thinking what's going to happen in two years. You are, but at the same time, do I have to build relationships of what I'm going to be doing in two years? Yes, you do. So I'm always encouraging entrepreneurs to really 
invest in that relationship component because at the end of the day, it comes to that. And most of the investors will come from that relationship that you've built at some earlier stage and they've actually seen the growth and they've seen how that evolution has been. You've been keeping them in the loop. So I'm always one to advise, invest in the relationship, put yourself reminders in your Google calendar and just update them periodically and figure out how you can actually create a very digestible newsletter, something that you can share. But that's normally a relatively easy common practice that I think does lead to successful outcomes. And I guess back to a little theme that we touched on earlier, but given the global spread of your organization in many different and diverse countries, Adrian, when it comes to finding capital for a business, do you see very different approaches? You know, I think of some of your ventures in like, Nigeria, Philippines, Ecuador, Romania, you know, it's, it's everywhere. Do you see a different appetite for fundraising in smaller growing businesses than you see in other locations? There definitely is more appetite. And the one thing that has been, I guess, positive, if we have to say it, call it in a way, of the pandemic has actually been this whole tendency of Zoom investing in which international investors have really been looking at verticals and market opportunities, which has meant in the end that they've been looking at these funding opportunities in Nigeria or funding opportunities in, I don't know, Indonesia, whereas before they might not have. So it really has been an advantage in the last two years where we've seen more of that trend of these international investors coming into these markets, which has actually also meant all that we've noticed and all that we've seen, which has been that trend of having to see more and more unicorns as we were talking about recently. We've seen, obviously, an explosion in the number of unicorns and the valuation of companies, but that is also due to the capital has actually been poured into these markets that before were actually very much under the radar. So it's actually been really good because at the end of the day, that capital is going into these companies. Those companies are investing in their people. They're investing in their markets. So it really does trickle down. So for us, we see it as an amazing advantage, regardless what people say, if there's a bubble, if there's not a bubble, if this will last, if this won't last. Whatever happens, it's going to be a positive outcome because the investments have been made in these companies and it already has put the spotlight in these different markets. So seeing these constant investments in Spain, Nigeria, Argentina, all over the world is something that is just positive of this current moment in the last, I guess, two, two and a half years. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I just want to turn over to the other side of your business. You describe Endeavor as a mix between a mission-oriented, not-profit organization focusing on entrepreneurs and also a fund arm in the context of Endeavor Catalyst, looking at rules-based investing. Talk to us a little bit about that side of business, Adrian, if you will. I'd be keen to hear. Yes, Alan, it's exactly as you said. So at the core of what we do and those 500 employees that I told you about, that is the mission-oriented nonprofit. But on the other side, to be able to fund this, we came up with Endeavor Catalyst. I'll explain a bit more about the origins of Endeavor Catalyst. So Endeavor was founded 25 years ago, and this year is our 25th anniversary. And for the first 15 years, we support our entrepreneurs as we still do, and we celebrate their successes. But the only thing is that we realized that once we went back home, after celebrating their successes, we were back at square one. So we'd supported these amazing entrepreneurs. We had discovered them in their very early days. They made quite well for themselves. The venture firms that had backed them had, had to. But for us, it was basically back to square one. So we were going back to scrambling on finding funding, being able to obtain grants, et cetera. So what we realized 10 years ago is that why didn't we start a very clearly defined rules-based fund? So that's the venture arm that you just described. And that's Endeavor Catalyst. And what Endeavor Catalyst does 
is it leverages the existence of the nonprofit. So at our core, we're still selecting the same entrepreneurs. We're selecting these high-end entrepreneurs that are leading scalable companies that have a global ambition. It's basically what you said. They dream big, they scale, and they pay it forward. And that's the kind of entrepreneur that we're always aiming to attract into Endeavor. And we're still selecting entrepreneurs based on that exact same criteria as we were back then. But what has changed now is that any entrepreneur that's selected into Endeavor, if one, they're an Endeavor entrepreneur, two, if they raise more than $5 million, and three, if the round is led by an institutional investor, we will automatically co-invest. And we co-invest 10% of that round with a maximum ticket of $1.5 million. So a round of 5 million, we would put 500K, a round of 15 million, we put 1.5, anything above, we'd still stick to the 1.5. But it's very clear that it's rules-based because we wanted to avoid a conflict of interest. We wanna be able to still select the absolutely best entrepreneurs. And if they're not gonna be raising funds, great. And if they're gonna be raising funds and we're not able to get an allocation, it's fine. We want to be able to support our entrepreneurs. So at the core of what we do, all that we're about, as I mentioned before, is the of, by, and for entrepreneurs. That's the nonprofit, and that's what's really guiding us. We're just leveraging the fact that we have 500 people selecting the absolute best entrepreneurs and figuring out how we can actually invest in them. It's interesting that right now we're raising a fund, but sometime later this year, we'll be at $500 million of assets under management. Our funds one, two, and three have been extremely successful considering that we're invested in, what, 30-something markets. So it's actually been quite a ride for the last nine, 10 years. But I always make it very clear that Endeavor Catalyst operates kind of like on its own, leveraging the fact that Endeavor, the nonprofit, exists. So there's a very symbiotic relationship between the two of us, and one doesn't exist without the other. And thanks to the fund, we are able to fund what we do, our daily activity of selecting entrepreneurs. And Adrian, is there a sort of a sector bias or a preference within the fund? It isn't. No, we've always been sector agnostic. It is true that we will see a lot of tech-enabled companies just because of the nature of the business and the kind of companies that are growing. But no, there's no particular focus. I mean, we have biotech, we have restaurant chains, we have consumer goods. I mean, really, you can see it all. Endeavor has all types of companies. If you look at Catalyst itself, again, yes, you will see a predominance of tech-enabled companies. That's just because of that's more of the weight of the companies that we have at Endeavor. But there's no bias. I mean, the rules are very clear. Endeavor Entrepreneur raises 5 million plus and an institutional investor that's leading it. Sector agnostic. So any sector, as long as those rules are met, we will automatically co-invest or try to co-invest if the marketing entrepreneur allows us. And what's super impressive, I guess, about Catalyst is just the sheer volume of unicorn businesses within the portfolio. If you can talk to me about some of those, you must be super proud of some of the organizations within the portfolio. Yes, let's see. We are extremely proud. It's up to 44. I've lost count because now, you know, since a unicorn is a unicorn at valuation and not post IPO nor an exit, I have to break down that number. But if we're talking about 1 billion plus uh, valuation at some point, we have, I believe it's 45 Endeavor Catalyst companies, which is extremely impressive. It's impressive not only because of the valuation and the impressive part is to see how these companies have come to be and where these companies are based out. If we look back, when I joined Endeavor eight years ago, we spoke about very few companies that had a market capitalization back then of over a billion dollars. That was basically Mercado Libre, which is a mega e-commerce in Latam. But outside from that, that was about it. After that, slowly we gradually started seeing a few unicorns coming on. And it's been obviously the last two and a half years in which we've seen a bit of an explosion on that. An explosion on both sides, an explosion on the amount of unicorns that we have and also the amount of investments that we're making per month. I mean, we used to be making a handful of investments a year with our fund. 
Whereas last year we made 50 something. I don't have the number right now at the top of my head, but it's, I think it's 53 or 54 on foreign investments. So it's quite impressive. As to the companies and the unicorns, I always say that I don't like getting stuck on the valuation. It's what that valuation means. And that first unicorn in, I don't know, Chile, for example, is impressive, not because it's the first Chilean unicorn, just because it means that investors are going to start looking at Chile with different eyes. And all of a sudden, there's going to be more investment pouring in, especially international investment pouring in and seeing the potential of these markets. So all of a sudden, we're seeing that talent is actually global, ideas are global, and solutions are global. And you see this with different examples. I mean, we see these online secondhand car companies that have been popping up all over the world. We have cars, um, Kavak, several click cars. I mean, we have several others all over the world in the different markets in which we operate. And the same thing was true back in the day with ride-hailing solutions. Everyone was speaking about Uber, but if we look at the founding dates of different platforms such as I don't know, Kareem or Cabify, it was more or less at the same time. So these companies were not me too. The only thing is that they had different funding options. Uber was based out of the US, so they could actually aggressively fund themselves, whereas the other companies based out of Latin America, Europe, or Middle East couldn't access that aggressive funding. So they grew at a different pace, but the solution came at the same time. Now the great thing is that with capital flowing into these markets, you can have an amazing solution and be based out of South Africa, and you can be a reference global company from day one, from day two. And Adrian, just picking up on that, do you think the access to capital, the volume of capital coming into these companies, has that been the key to turbocharging some of the growth we're seeing in some of these businesses? The capital has definitely been there, and that has been a key component to being able to attract that key talent that we were talking about before, and actually also being able to expand into different verticals, one, and different markets, too. So for sure, this capital has been pouring in has translated into the growth of these companies. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your role as president of Endeavor, which is, as you discussed, a super interesting organization in its own right. But I guess as a president of the organization, Adrian, what's some of the key challenges you find? For us, I look at our entrepreneurs and it's the same challenge. It's always around the customer and it's always around the people and the talent. When I look at a customer, I look at my entrepreneurs. So one of my key challenges is always staying relevant for our entrepreneurs, trying to do something that is relevant to them. It could be gatherings, it could be content, it could be amplifying the network, whatever it is, but be it something that is relevant and something that adds value to our entrepreneurs. And then from a talent perspective, it's people, people, people. It's being able to retain and attract those absolutely top people. And in the market as competitive as we are, and in a place that gives people so much exposure as we give, retention is key. So a lot of the time we're trying to figure out what can we do to be able to retain our top talent. So I'd say those are the two things that are keeping me up at night is what can I do? What can we do as an organization that is going to be additive to our entrepreneurs? And then from a talent perspective, what can we do just to be able to retain those people and have them stay a bit longer and more motivated and attract the next generation of top people too. When you think about that retention and talent acquisition, I think we've spoken to a number of organizations over the last year or so, and the so-called war for talent has become ever more difficult for a number of organizations, and that continues. I think particularly in a world which is ever more remote from a working environment perspective and virtual, do you see that challenge as well? We definitely have seen that challenge, yes, and we've not been immune to the great resignation, and we've seen a lot of movement in the last year, year and a half. At the same time, being as we are 
a mission-oriented organization, we do tend to attract and retain people for a bit longer time just because of that part of the business of our model, I'd say. But yes, I mean, we have not been immune to all the other factors in the market and also to the dislocalization of people. So we now have people that are also working remotely. It's all changed. I think it's for the best. We do feel, though, that culture is very important and being able to maintain culture does come with some degree of in-person connectivity. So it's interesting right now, we're in the process of renewing or revamping our office, our physical office space here in New York. And it's taken us a while with the pandemic and everything. It took us a while to be able to get contractors and all that in. So we did have the space, but we really didn't have it ready. I mean, we had some old furniture. And at one point we decided to put some internet connection because people were just going to hang out at the office. And I'd go to the office sometimes without having spoken with absolutely anyone. And I'd see that over half of the employees were already there. And they'd be, what are you guys doing here? And they were like, well, it's just better here. I mean, first of all, we have more space. We're able to connect with one another and want to get out of our homes. So I do feel that there's going to be more of that coming after two and a half years of remote work. And I also do feel with younger generations, I do think that they want to feel connected and they want to feel as part of what organization be able to connect in person and create that culture. And I think that we'll go back to some kind of hybrid model as every organization will. And that'll be the core part of being able to retain and attract that key talent. I agree with you entirely. And I think let's hope that direction of travel continues. And what's next for Endeavor, Adrian? What do you see is key part of your next stage of your growth? Let's see, for us, what's key right now is also on the one side, getting the word out, meaning that we've been a very well-kept secret for the last 25 years. And we don't want to be tooting our own horn too much, but we do want entrepreneurs to know that we're there, especially in the markets in which we operate. We do want the best-in-class entrepreneurs to be part of our network. And we also want the best-in-class mentors and board members and chairmen and, and CEOs to also be part of our network of our mentors, our ambassadors, and our board members. So I guess we want to get the word out a bit more. So we'll be doing a bit more of a push, I guess, marketing-wise. And then always back to, as I said, back to the customer, back to the client, back to the entrepreneurs, but figuring out how we can keep on being relevant, how we can maintain that high standard of being able to do things that entrepreneurs feel are additive to them. So I guess that our future is going to be very much determined by what our needs and what our wants and what our asks from our entrepreneurs are. And talking of entrepreneurs, and to finish, Agent, what is it that you look for in an entrepreneur? Well, let's see. I mean, if we're talking about a network that is based on mentoring, the one thing that we want from an entrepreneur is someone that's going to be willing to listen. And sometimes, I mean, we all know entrepreneurs have normally the answers to everything. But apart from having the answer to everything, we want them to also have the questions for everything. And with those questions come answers that might not be the ones they're looking for. And we want them to be receptive to feedback. And we've seen this so many times. I mean, sometimes the entrepreneurs that don't want to listen to feedback are the ones that tend to have a harder time or struggle, or the ones that feel that they can solve it on their own, they don't need the support of a community. Those are the ones that come to us with years and they tell us, you know what, you've been insisting for many years that I became part of Endeavor and I didn't, I did this and I was successful, but now the time has gone by, I should have. And it's funny because they end up joining our boards or they end up joining some other way Endeavor. But it's interesting to see that it's the one thing that we're always looking for. We're looking for entrepreneurs that are really open to receiving that feedback and open to learning new things and being more exposed to different markets, different entrepreneurs and different points of view. So I guess that's the core thing that we're looking for entrepreneurs, people that are truly receptive. Obviously, we're looking for that vision, the aspiration. They're really thinking big. They're wanting to pay it forward almost from day one. You know, they're always mentoring the next generation, even if they have no time on their hands. 
But I guess the first thing that we're always looking for is that, I don't know, enough humility to be able to learn from others. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole essence of the community and the network, which you have at Endeavor, very much a buy into that. Adrian, many thanks for your time. I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for joining us from New York. I know many of our listeners will be keen to have heard from you. I wish you every success in the continued growth of Endeavor and the fund as well. I'm sure it will grow from strength to strength. At some point, we'd love to hear again from you and see how things are going. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us and look forward to speaking again next time. Perfect, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm always delighted to talk about entrepreneurship and mainly talk about Endeavor. So I'll be delighted to join if you invite me again. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Mm-hmm.